when the Buddha taught, he emphasized certain qualities a lot, various qualities in particular. He emphasized energy and mindfulness in particular. These are two two qualities that he really indicated. These are important if you want to practice and understand what I'm teaching. These qualities are very, very helpful to cultivate. So tonight I'd like to talk about mindfulness. First I'd like to explore definitions of mindfulness or what we think of as mindfulness, just to explore that a little bit. I think the simplest way we often think about it is just this sense of being present. Just this quality of presence. Another way that uh, we often think about mindfulness is as a witnessing of our experience. That somehow there's um, a distance between what we're experiencing and this witness. And that's often the, a way that we think of mindfulness, that this witness is this aspect of mindfulness. One definition or one way of thinking about it that I like to use is kind of a, just a way to roughly define it, a kind of a working definition, is that mindfulness can be thought of as knowing what is happening while it is happening. So there's those two pieces. There's the knowing quality, the knowing what's happening. And then the awareness that you know it while it's happening. I'm sure many of you have had an experience of, um, you know, sitting in a room and reading a book or doing something, and you know you're kind of focused on what you're doing, and um, that's mostly what you're aware of is, you know, like this reading of the book. But you know, somebody comes in the room and walks out of the room, and you know, you, you, there's there's a sort of vague awareness of of that. And if somebody comes up to you later and said, have you seen so-and-so, it might be like, oh yeah, I think they came in while I was reading the book. But there wasn't that clear knowing of that experience while it was happening. So that's one way we can understand that's not the kind of awareness we're talking about. We're talking about a clear knowing of what's happening at the moment that it is happening. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati, spelled S-A-T-I. And the root of that word um, is related to the, the, uh, the sense of memory, of remembering. So there's a connection between this sense of mindfulness and remembering. One of my teachers says, mindfulness is about remembering, just about remembering what's happening, remembering yourself. That's actually a way we can explore it. My teacher, Sayadaw Tejaniya, says, if you're struggling to be mindful, just just remember yourself. Think about yourself. What am I doing right now? That 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 can be a way in to the exploration of mindfulness. Just remembering yourself. One of um, the preeminent Buddhist scholars of today, Analio, Bhikkhu Analio, has written a lovely book on mindfulness and the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Buddha's, the Buddha's discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha's discourse on his description of how to practice mindfulness meditation. It's a central, central discourse in the Buddha's teaching. And this teacher, Analio, wrote a book kind of a modern-day commentary about this sutta. And in that book, he looks at this definition being that of remembering. And he offers the uh, explanation or the uh, kind of a definition that the quality or the factor of mindfulness, it's a factor of mind that allows memory to function. 
I kind of played with that one day. After I read the definition, I spent the next day just kind of playing with that. What is the state of mind? What is the, the quality of mind that can remember? It's a, it's a state in which you are present and alert and aware of while things are happening. So that's another way to explore this quality of mindfulness, a factor that allows memory to function. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, there's, there's a difference, I think, between uh, a factor of mind that allows memory to function and memories being recorded, <laughs> you know, actually being you know, kept and held in our mind. Uh, one of my teachers, again, Saida Utejaniya, says that um, you know, initially when we start to practice mindfulness, if we think of mindfulness as being connected with having a good memory, um, initially what seems to happen to us as we start to practice mindfulness, we move into the present moment, we're paying attention to the present moment, and we seem to forget things a lot. It's like we don't remember what's happened to us. And his explanation for that is that typically the way our mem- memory works is that we repeat things to ourselves over and over again. And I think there's some truth to this, that um, there's a way in which when we want to remember something, we, we kind of make an effort to remember it. And what happens when we're paying attention right in the present moment is we're not making that effort to repeat things to ourselves. And so that way of getting things into memory goes away. But then he said, when the quality of mindfulness is very high, when the the mindfulness is extremely clear and very strong, then you will remember things. And I have had that experience. There have been times where the mindfulness was just so clear. It was, you know, during times when I was particularly uh, paying attention uh, to to my experience, and something, you know, very clear unfolded, and. It's just like it's just seared in my mind, that experience. It's just seared in my mind because the mindfulness was so strong. So there, there, we can think of there being a connection between mindfulness and memory. Another way I like to um, c- contemplate or think about mindfulness, explore this quality of mindfulness, is to think about it as kind of a reflective capacity of mind, as a capacity of our mind that reflects what's happening in the moment. That we have this capacity of mind that can know itself, essentially. Now, this is part of the, qual- the, the quality of mindfulness, that, that it, it can reflect what's happening not only in the world, but in our experience itself, in our mind itself. We can be mindful of being mindful. We can be aware of how our mind is working. So in this way, I, I like to think about mindfulness as kind of being like a mirror. It just reflects what's happening in our experience. There's always things going on in our experience. There's always a kind of an awareness happening. There's always a, a, a quality of knowing happening in our experience. But mindfulness is not always happening. When mindfulness is happening, it is just reflecting everything else that's happening in our mind and body. So it's a very simple kind of self-reflective process in the mind. In a sense, it's what makes us human. Although they do say that some other animals have this self-reflective quality or capacity. But it is a capacity that we have as human beings. This ability to know ourselves, essentially. So this quality of mindfulness, it's an ordinary quality in our minds. It's something that we come with. It's something that we're born with. We all have this capacity, this uh, moments of mindfulness come up for us. Whether, whether or not we even know what it is, there are times when mindfulness comes up. At times through the day, it just spontaneously comes into appearance. But what we um, 
typically do with that moment. I mean, we don't, we don't usually notice the fact that mindfulness has appeared for us. We usually, um, the way we've been trained, the way our minds usually work, is that when we become aware of something in the moment, we usually kind of leap onto it, start thinking about it, and doing things with it. So, for instance, we might, you know, notice something and then start relating it to who am I and what do I need to do about that? So that we we don't actually notice so much the fact that we have been aware of something. It immediately moves into how does it relate to me? What do I need to do about it? So we'll often take some action out of this. You know, we notice something and then we'll take some action. So for instance, you're you're walking through San Geronimo Lodge and you notice a big spider on the wall. You know, you might be aware of that, but often what happens with something like that is that, oh spider, I need to do something about that. Maybe I'll I'll get a cup and, you know, capture it and take it outside. And so we we, you know, move from knowing to action without recognizing the fact that we have known something, without recognizing the fact that there's been a a little tiny moment of mindfulness there. So this quality of mindfulness actually happens to us a lot, spontaneously through the day. It comes up a lot, but we don't actually notice it because of our habitual pattern of doing something with what we have noticed. So this actual experience, so, you know, the noticing of something, the noticing of the spider on the wall, we don't really stop or or recognize, oh, there's been some mindfulness, there's been a moment of recognizing this thing. We don't, we may not even recognize the thing, we may not even really be that clear that we've recognized something, we're moving into the action of what to do about it immediately. So there's... You know, not only are we not really registering the initial experience clearly in our minds, but we are not recognizing that we have been, that there has been a a split second of mindfulness. You know, we need mindfulness. Mindfulness, this quality of mind, you know, I don't think we could live without this quality. If we continually lived in, you know, a state of fantasy, you know, we'd be bumping into things all day. So, that, you know, we need, we need this quality of mindfulness to help us get through our day, but we just don't recognize it as, a, as something that kind of comes for us. We don't experience the mindfulness consciously. It kind of is under the radar for us. And I think it is part of the brilliance of the Buddha, actually, to have recognized this quality this, this ordinary quality of mind that just happens for all of us. And for him to say, wow, you know, this is actually a really interesting quality. I think it would be helpful to pay attention to this. I think this was brilliant to, for him to actually highlight this as a very skillful quality, worth cultivating, worth paying attention to. Now this kind of ordinary mindfulness that is just coming up for us in the day. Um, And that kind of mindfulness may not really be enough, even if we start to notice it, it may not really be enough to lead us to the kind of wisdom and understanding that the Buddha had, to to the freedom from the way that we suffer, the way that we struggle. He really, he pointed to this quality of mindfulness as being essential in the movement to freedom from our reactivity, our struggles, our suffering. But this simple, ordinary quality of mindfulness may not be quite enough. Saito Utejaniya says, one of the names of one of his books is called Awareness Alone is Not Enough. And he often uses the word awareness to be synonymous with mindfulness. So when he says that, when he says awareness alone is not enough or mindfulness alone is not enough, what he's pointing to is that um, the Buddha also brought 
mindfulness together with wisdom. So what 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 is wisdom? You know, we often have this term wisdom has a kind of a grandiose sound to it. You know, we think, well, if I have to have wisdom to be mindful, it's like, well, there's little hope because I don't know how much wisdom I have. Some very specific kinds of wisdom that the Buddha pointed to. And some of them are pretty straightforward. He's just pointing to, you know, this is what's helpful. Orienting our attention in this direction is helpful. So bringing mindfulness, and in a sense this is another way that the remembering comes into play. So he says it's helpful to remember to be aware of these things. In particular, he pointed to in a kind of a simple way, he said there's certain things in our mind that will lead us to suffering. The quality of greed, the quality of aversion, the quality of delusion. If we're engaged in acting out of those intentions, those motivations, we're going to head to suffering. If we um, connect to non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, kindness, compassion, and wisdom, we connect to to those qualities instead. Then we head away from suffering. And so he pointed to part of the wisdom is understanding what is skillful and what is unskillful in our experience. What is unskillful is what leads us to suffering, leads us to struggle, leads us to distress. And he pointed to these qualities of greed, aversion, delusion as kind of being the root causes for that struggling. What leads us away from that? Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So this wisdom that supports mindfulness, he, uh, he called wise attention. And it's related to the Four Noble Truths, really. It's related to seeing in our experience what is suffering? Beginning to recognize in our experience, what, where do we struggle? How, how does the suffering, and how does this suffering come to be? So that's the first and second noble truth. Understanding suffering and recognizing, letting go of the cause of suffering. So we, we explore our experience fr- through this kind of framework, essentially. Oh, there's suffering. Can I understand this suffering? What's the cause of that suffering? And what, what it leads me away from suffering? This is the third noble truth, the possibility of the freedom from suffering. And what supports that? What supports moving away from suffering? And the fourth noble truth, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So there's really two key elements if we think about how the wise attention framed in terms of the Four Noble Truths. That's that's one of the main ways he talked about it, is that one who attends wisely understands this is suffering. One who attends wisely understands this is the cause of suffering. So he's pointing us into the present moment here. He's pointing us to attending wisely in the moment to our experience through this framework of the Four Noble Truths. And when I look at that, I see kind of two key elements to this wise attention. One has to do with understanding suffering, beginning to see in our own experience what suffering is, recognizing it. And the other has to do with beginning to understand and explore the cause and effect relationship in experience. How does suffering come to be? How does it end? How does happiness come to be? What supports that? So that it's not just understanding suffering, but the understanding of suffering leads us to seeing the causes and conditions, the, the, the things that create suffering. And as the mind sees that, as mindfulness witnesses the causes of suffering, 
Well, one of the key pieces is that, I think as I said last night, that the causes of suffering, this, you know, the, one of the deepest causes of suffering is this wanting things to be other than they are. It is the wanting, it's in our own minds that this suffering is produced. This is actually good news, you know. It might not sound like good news that the suffering is created by our own minds. But if the suffering were created out there and we had no input into it, it would be hopeless. As it is, the way that we struggle, the reasons that we struggle, have to do with things that are happening in our own minds. And we can change the course of our minds by bringing this wise attention. So that's one of the aspects of wisdom that supports mindfulness, or that that makes mindfulness actually a really liberating quality of mind, one that really supports us to move towards freedom from suffering, freedom from distress, freedom from struggle, freedom from dissatisfaction. Dukkha, the term, the Pali term dukkha, freedom from dukkha. Dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it's a subtler term than that. You know, it really has a very broad range of meanings. I like to think about the uh, etymology of that word as well. And my understanding is that there are two parts to the, to the word, the do part and the ka part. And the do part means bad. And the ka part my understanding is that it means the empty space in the middle of a wheel. And so if you think about what it means to have an empty space in the middle of the wheel that's bad, and there's many ways that could be, right? It might be off-center. So it's just kind of like, you know, the ride that you'd have if you have in the empty space in the middle of the wheel, that's where the axle goes through. You know, if it's off-center, the ride's going to be just a little rough and uneven. Or perhaps that space is a little too tight so that the axle grips and it's, you know, it's like, a, it's not a smooth ride, it's a tight ride. Or maybe it's too loose so it's kind of wobbly. Or maybe it's really loose so that it falls off and you crash altogether. So this, you know, this term dukkha really covers a broad range of kinds of suffering. From the subtlest kind of unease to the grossest kind of suffering. And this path that the Buddha is offering and this tool of mindfulness paired with wisdom leads us to freedom from this dukkha. The dukkha that is created through our mind not being willing to meet things as they are but always wanting to adjust and fix and change. So that's one of the aspects of the wisdom uh, that supports mindfulness being a factor that really helps us to free ourselves from this dukkha. Another one is um, a different way of framing it, perhaps, is noticing how we're paying attention. I mentioned this this morning in the guided meditation, that how we pay attention is as important if not more important, than what we actually are paying attention to. So this, um, it's kind of like we, we can begin to recognize, and this is another one of the amazing things of our mind, the capacity to recognize as we're paying attention to something, we can see the thing that we're paying attention to, we can notice that we're paying attention to, for instance, a pain in the knee or a, an itch on our nose or... Um, the sound of a dog barking in the distance. You know, we can notice the qualities and texture of those experiences. That's part of what mindfulness does. It notices the qualities of experience. And we'll talk more about this in the days to come, of different textures to experience. So the mindfulness can notice the qualities of the experience itself, but it can also turn and notice how it is noticing that So the pain in the knee, you're noticing the pain in the knee. You're noticing, you know, burning, stabbing, um, aching, pulling, twisting, pressure. 
you may or may not be noticing an aversion in the mind with which you are paying attention. It may not be aversion. I mean, I'm just bringing that up because often when we're experiencing pain, there is a sense of not liking, of pushing away, that is also present in our experience. And so if we are not noticing that, if we're observing that pain in the knee with this attitude or the how we're paying attention to that is with this aversion, this hatred, this I want to get rid of this, I want to fix this, I want to change it, what we're doing is cultivating that aversion. So it's really important to begin to turn towards and recognize how we're paying attention to experience. It's as if almost all the time we're seeing our experience through some kind of filter, some kind of lens. You know, we've got the red lenses on or the blue lenses on. We've got the, you know, we've got the I hate this lens on or we've got the I want more of this lens on. And if we don't notice that, then we're essentially reinforcing that filter. We're practicing that filter. So, you know, if you've got these lenses on, you've got these red lenses on, you know, one of the ways to explore this is, you know, can we begin to recognize, oh, I'm looking through red lenses. If you're looking through red lenses, if you, if you wear them for a long time, you stop noticing the redness of things. So if you, if you can begin to recognize, oh, there is a tinge here, there's a tinge of something in this experience. So you can start to recognize that you're looking through this filter. You start to recognize that there's this quality of aversion in the mind that is part of this experience. That is kind of the first step towards um, moving towards a more balanced attitude in the mind, a more balanced way of paying attention. From there, we may be able to actually you know, kind of have the sense of taking that lens or that filter off and then looking at it so that we're not looking through it anymore, but we're recognizing, oh, that's what aversion is like. And we'll talk more in the coming days about how to actually turn and pay attention to the qualities in our mind, how to pay attention to aversion, how to pay attention to greed, how to pay attention to frustration and irritation. So for now, we can just recognize, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm paying attention to that pain in my knee, and I don't like it. Recognize that. The very recognition of it helps to create a little bit of balance in the mind. If we can recognize, oh yeah, not liking, that's what's happening. We can be aware of not liking with a kind of a more balanced attention, a balanced kind of mind. Now, these, these things can have many layers to them. And this is something that we, we begin to kind of unravel the layers of our holding through this exploration. You know, we see, oh, yeah, I don't like that. Okay, I'm, you know, there's that, that aversion. I hate that. And we start to recognize, okay, there's that, that hating. That's what's happening. And then we begin to see, oh, there's actually fear here. I see. There's some fear going on. And so, you know, we, we, through this exploration, we begin to uncover layer after layer of ways that we're holding and reacting. So beginning to have a recognition of how we're paying attention. This morning I was encouraging bringing as much of a sense of friendliness and kindness to your attention as you can. That will support um, a letting go of any you know, pushing away or um, resisting of experience. But if you can't bring a sense of friendliness and kindness, see if you can at least recognize, yeah, I don't like this. Just see if you can frame it in your mind with even that kind of relaxed quality to the recognition. Yeah, I don't like this. That's what's happening. So in my own experience, my own exploration, you know, the wisdom of the Buddhist teaching is really, really rich. It's really dense. You know, it's like the littlest tiny piece of it 
goes a long way. So you don't really have to understand the entirety of the Buddhist teachings to begin to practice and begin to experience benefits from the teaching. So, you know, a little bit of this wisdom paired with this willingness to explore experience can be very freeing. In my own experience, in early, the first few months of my practice, my friend Chris sent me a book that encouraged me to... I mean, I read this book, and it's like I didn't understand much of it. One thing I got out of this book, though, was when you're experiencing a strong emotion, see if you can just notice that emotion as opposed to acting on it. So this is a little bit of the Buddha's wisdom. This, instead of acting on your emotions, see if you can observe them. So I began practicing with that. Just, it's like, I don't know how this is going to help, was kind of what I thought, but through the exploration of just that one little bit, I could, I could connect with that teaching and bring mindfulness to my emotions. And some very deep unraveling happened in the first few months of my experience around some of my more difficult emotions. And that was a very small bit of the wisdom. Very powerful openings. Very deep seeing of how the mind was creating experience and saying, oh, I don't have to go there. It's very, very powerful. So as we explore our experience, we could call this pairing of mindfulness and wisdom right mindfulness, the mindfulness of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path being this fourth noble truth, a set of practices that support our understanding, our minds, leading us towards happiness. Right mindfulness is one of the components of the Eightfold Path. So really this pairing of this quality of mindfulness with wisdom is what makes right mindfulness. So this moves us in the direction of recognizing just what's happening in the moment without judgment, without reactivity, without an agenda that it has to be different. Just the noticing of experience moment to moment. That's what this right mindfulness moves us towards. It's a kind of attention that doesn't interfere with experience. It just recognizes what's happening. It's that mirror. You know, a mirror simply reflects experience. The mirror doesn't care what the experience is. It just reflects it. It might be reflecting a a beautiful landscape or it might be reflecting a decaying corpse. The mirror is unchanged by what it reflects. And in a similar way, mindfulness is unchanged by what it is experiencing. It is just knowing it, recognizing it. So why is this right mindfulness helpful? Why is it helpful to have this quality that can just meet experience without judgment, without reactivity, just knowing what's happening in the moment without a personal agenda? Part of it is that with this quality of mindfulness, the non-reactive mind can look at reactivity. It sounds like a paradox, you know, how can, how can we actually, how can it be possible that if our minds are reacting that we can be mindful of that and not be in, increasing or encouraging that reactivity? This is what I didn't understand about that instruction when I read it. It's like pay attention to your emotions instead of acting on them. It's like, well, if I pay attention to my anger, isn't it just going to make the anger worse? That's what I thought. It's like, well, I'll try it and see what happens. There's something about the way that the mindfulness functions. That is, you know, it seems to the um, the neurological studies around this show that when the mind begins to recognize or acknowledge, you know, even using this mental labeling that we talked about, if you use mental labeling around difficulty or reactivity, 
what it does, I mean, reactivity is often happening in the kind of the core part of the brain, what they call the limbic system, which is the the old part of the brain, the, the kind of reactive, the one that, that has to just react to experience immediately. And the mindfulness is happening in the newer part of the brain. So what's happening here is that we're engaging a different part of the brain with the mindfulness. So the, the kind of looping quality of reactivity that reinforces itself is happening at a part of the brain that um, you know, it's, at a, it's at that lower level. And when we bring in this, uh, this newer part of the brain, it, it kind of breaks the cycle a little bit. And that's what I found in my own experience. You know, the first time, I remember the first time I, I woke up to a difficult emotion. I, I had vowed, I had said to myself, I'm just going to pay attention when I get really angry. And I woke up in the midst of a rage. It's like, oh yeah, I said I was going to pay attention to this. What is it? How do I do that? I had no idea. I, you know, I had really had very little training. I had read this book. And, uh, you know, it was like, I don't know. Well, yeah, I see I'm angry. Okay, well, I guess I go back to work. And, you know, in retrospect, what I saw, or what I I see in retrospect is that in that first time when I woke up in that rage, I was frozen, unable to do anything but just loop in that rage. And the very recognition, oh yeah, I'm angry, I said I was going to pay attention to that, broke into that cycle enough that I could let it go enough to be able to even go back to work because I hadn't been, I hadn't been functional. That's actually one of the reasons why I, I brought mindfulness in in my experience because it, my emotions were just making me non-functional. So the mindfulness can observe our reactivity and bringing in a different aspect of our mind can begin to support an unwinding of that reactivity through not reacting further. It's kind of like when we break in with mindfulness to our reactivity. It, it, it moves, it kind of can stop it at that level of wherever it is. And then slowly over time, and it took months for me to unwind these difficult emotions that I was having at that time when I started my practice. But they did unwind through this practice. Very powerful. So this is one of the main reasons, one of the, the big reasons that uh, you know, this right mindfulness is helpful. It really helps us to see our reactivity and it helps to unwind it so that we're not at the mercy of our reactivity. We can respond rather than react. We also can begin to notice with mindfulness when we're starting to go down a direction that's going to lead us into some unfortunate consequences. You know, speech is a good example of this. You know, we can begin to recognize, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm about ready to say something that maybe I don't want to say. So the mindfulness, this right mindfulness, can begin to reveal when we're getting ready to take an action. This is a a very powerful um, exploration that we can actually begin to see that we are intending to do something before it happens. That we're about to do something. So the mindfulness can, can see that. And in the seeing that we're about to do something, we usually can, can see why we're going to do it. And the seeing why, we can have a sense. Sometimes it can just be at a gut level. Hmm, don't know if I want to go there. Or, no, this feels okay. You know, I can do this. So that, again, this mindfulness of this intention can help us to choose skillfully. To act out of wholesome intentions instead of reacting out of greed, aversion, and delusion. As we do when we are not mindful. Right mindfulness also helps to create the conditions for deeper insight. And what I've been talking about so far, so far is kind of more at the, the level of living life more skillfully, being um, 
more wholesome in our activities and letting go of the ways that we react to things. But it begins to also create the conditions for us to really deeply see into the truth of reality. Without filters, if we, if we come to a place in mindfulness where we have seen through some of those filters and we're actually seeing clearly without these filters, without a filter of greed, a filter of aversion, or a filter of delusion, that mind, that kind of mindfulness, deeply understands and recognizes that everything that's happening is impermanent. It's just an unceasing, unchanging, unending, not unchanging, unending impermanent flow of experience. And it recognizes in seeing how unceasingly impermanent everything is that it doesn't make any sense to try to hold on to anything in that flow because it's all just like sand slipping through your fingers. There's no way to hold water, you know. If somebody pours water into your hand, there's no way to hold on to it. And the mind recognizes very deeply that there's no way to hold on to experience. And that there's really no one here to hold on to it. So these insights are the insights that really liberate us. These are the insights that deeply undercut our habit of clinging, of holding on to things, of wanting to have things be other than they are. So one thing I'd like to just, you know, the last few minutes of the talk, I'd like to explore a little bit one of the ways to cultivate mindfulness. When we practice mindfulness, you know, in the early days of retreat, we're often encouraging you to cultivate mindfulness by paying attention to the uh, the objects of, of experience. You know, you pay attention to the breathing. You notice the thinking. You know, over the days, we'll encourage you to explore more in the body and emotions. And we, we cultivate mindfulness by being aware of these experiences as they're happening. And we're also at the same time encouraging you to recognize the mindfulness itself. And the main way that we're encouraging this at this point is by encouraging you to really notice when your mindfulness comes back. So the moment when you remember that you have not been mindful, as I said this morning, you know, that moment is you're already mindful as soon as you know that. Mindfulness has already returned. If you're not mindful, you're not mindful. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no way you can make mindfulness happen. It kind of has to come back in that spontaneous way. And then we can choose because mindfulness has returned, we have kind of an avenue towards making choices. What do I do with this mindfulness? But one of the things that's really helpful in that moment is just to begin to recognize what's the difference between being lost and being aware. Now we can't really know the lost feeling in the moment of being lost. But in the moment of coming back into mindfulness, in that moment when mindfulness comes back, there's a lingering memory of what it was like to be lost. And so we can, in that moment, get a sense of the contrast in the mind. What's it like now to have that awareness back? What was it like a few minutes ago, or a moment ago, to be kind of lost in that fog? This one exploration was actually really, really productive for me, partly because it, it really helped me to let go of the idea around judging myself when the mindfulness came back. You know, if my mind wandered a hundred times in a 40-minute sitting, it gave me a hundred opportunities to explore this question. What is the difference between the mind being lost and the mind being present? 
gave me a hundred opportunities to recognize mindfulness returning, that moment of spontaneous mindfulness returning. It's a really amazing moment, that moment of mindfulness returning. It happens effortlessly. You know, you didn't do it. There it is. You're back. It gives you a pointer to the possibility it's, it's a possibility initially for a kind of ease with mindfulness. Because the mindfulness that comes back spontaneously, if we can connect with that as it returns, it's a pure, easy mindfulness. It takes no effort whatsoever. Just, phew, here we are. So connecting with that, gives you a feeling, a flavor for what this mindfulness feels like. And one of the other benefits of this, so one of the benefits was it really helped cut, cut this judging, for me at least, it helped cut the judging around my mind wandering because it was just an, oh, here's, here's another opportunity to see this. What is mindfulness? What, is, what does it feel like to be mindful? As the mind gets more familiar with what it feels like to be mindful, It's like the, those little moments I talked about at the beginning, the little moments of mindfulness that come back kind of spontaneously throughout your whole day that we don't notice usually. Because we now have become familiar with this feeling of mindfulness, those little moments of spontaneous mindfulness coming back, it's like they begin to point themselves out to us. And we see that they happen all the time. They're little little blips of awareness through our day. So this feeling of mindfulness is actually a familiar feeling to us. Once we start recognizing it, paying attention to it, we see it's actually a familiar feeling. It's just that we haven't bothered to notice it before. It's kind of like the air we breathe, you know. We don't really notice the air we're breathing very much. It's just so obvious. It's so present all the time. And in some similar way that those moments, those little blips of mindfulness happen to us so much, they're just like we don't, we don't pay attention to them. We don't recognize them. But when we start to attend to that, that feeling, we see, oh yeah, I know what this is. I know what this is about. So in that moment when you remember about mindfulness, you know, just seeing if you can incline towards recognizing, oh, mindfulness has returned. And then just simply, especially in informal times, I think I mentioned this at lunch, just before lunch, just notice what's obvious. See if you can connect with what is already happening. Wake up to what's already going on in your experience. So continuity is a crucial piece of this uh, for mindfulness, for this right mindfulness to become a factor that really supports freedom, liberation, awakening, enlightenment. Continuity of the mindfulness brings a deepening of the concentration. Continuity of the mindfulness itself will bring the quality of concentration along with it. We don't actually have to pay attention to one thing for the mind to settle down. It's supportive. It's definitely supportive. But it's actually the continuity of the mindfulness that brings the concentration. This Continuity, this practice around continuity does not have to be a kind of heavy hand. In fact, just the opposite. I think it's really helpful to have a really light touch around this mindfulness, around this trying, you know, maintaining this uh, moment after moment of noticing. There's no need to try to be more mindful in a moment. That's kind of what we try to do. It's like, oh, mindful. Oh, yes, mindful. Let me try to be really mindful right now. That is just 
over-efforting, actually. What's important, rather, is to just see if, oh, mindfulness, can we kind of touch that light moment after moment, just moment after moment, meet experience. That will create a momentum. And then mindfulness and concentration will kind of carry together. There's a little analogy I like to use about about this. You know, initially when we're cultivating this kind of continuity of mindfulness, this frequency of mindfulness, we have to encourage our mind to remember it a lot. It's kind of like, you know, those scooters that kids ride, little wheels, you know, little flatbed, and you stand with one foot on the rail and then tap the ground to get yourself going on the scooter. When you first start on the scooter, you have to kind of tap the ground a lot. Now, tapping down hard doesn't do much good. I mean, you you could, but you know, it, it's not that beneficial. It's just the light. Tap, tap, tap. It's the frequency that gets you going. And then once you're going, you can kind of tap less frequently. It's kind of similar with the mindfulness. You know, initially, we have to remind ourselves frequently, oh, just this moment, just this moment. And it is just that light. How much effort does it take for you to be mindful right now of the sensation of your hands? the sensations of your buttocks on the chair or cushion or bench, the sensations of your lips touching, the sensations of your hands. How much? It doesn't take much effort. What is hard is to keep remembering, and this is again another aspect of this remembering, it's hard to keep remembering to do it. So this is where some of the effort has to come in. Just moment after moment. Oh, this moment, and this moment, and this moment. And that continuity of this moment, this moment, this moment will be like the momentum of that scooter that will carry us, develop the concentration, and allow the mind to deeply see into the patterns of reactivity, see where the choices are, makes, help us to make skillful choices, and to see deeply into the nature of experience leading us to the insights into impermanence, into this dukkha, this dissatisfactoriness, this unsatisfactoriness, and this really ephemerality that there isn't anyone here experiencing or doing. It's just a process. It's really a flow, a process. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.